The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 50, which is the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, July the 22nd, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're still continuing our, our study in the life of David in, in 1 Samuel, uh, and then we're also in the book of Acts and in the gospel according to Mark. So today we've got 1 Samuel 28, verses 3 to 20. We have been told, remember earlier, that Samuel had died. And he was buried there in Ramah, his own city. And so it's repeated it again here. And it's partly to to tell us something. And that is that Saul no longer had a, quote, oracle. Because you remember in the very beginning of the story of Saul, he's looking for some donkeys that belong to his father. And they have gotten away. And then he goes towards this place where Samuel is. And, and once he gets there, somebody tells him that, hey, there's a guy here who's a prophet. And, and so they go to Samuel. And Samuel talks to him about uh, the, the donkeys. He assures them they've gotten home. But he also gives him more word than that. He tells him that he's going to be the next king because the God, God's told him that. And so, so he has put away his oracle, his prophet, Samuel, the priest, and so now, or I mean, Samuel's died, and so he's no longer there for Saul to consult with. Not that he would have been anyway, because he'd already rejected him and gone away from him. But at the same time, he had put away the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So those people who consort with the spirits of the dead is essentially what that's saying. Necromancer, that's exactly what it means. Necro is like necrophilia, somebody who well, does weird things. But necromancer is somebody who consorts with uh, or consults the dead. And so that's exactly what it is. So there's nobody here now who can, who can give him alternative sources of information and wisdom in the land. It's a good thing to put him out of the land, but but it leaves Saul bereft if he can't get a word himself. And so that's exactly what happens. The Philistines assembled, and they came and camped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they had camped at Gilboa. And then Saul seized the army of the Philistines, and he was afraid. And his heart trembled greatly. Now, he had been told early on that, that he would be the salvation of his people from the Philistines, but he doesn't trust God. He sees what he sees, and he's like one of the spies. There's, th- th- we can't do this. We cannot do this. And so, so he's afraid because he sees the evidence of his eyes, and the evidence of his eyes is the Philistines are greater than us. And so he fears because of that, and his heart trembles greatly. And then he inquires of the Lord. He prays, and the Lord didn't answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. And so now he gets panicky, and he says, find me a woman who's a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant says, well, there's one, uh, there's a medium or a witch at Endor if you want to go there. So Saul dresses himself up in um, other garments, it says, and he went with two of his men, and they come to the woman by night. And he, he, he says, divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. She thinks he's a spy, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? So she's got 
an idea that, that this is something that it's a trap that she's stepping into here. Um, but she doesn't seem to recognize Saul because the way she approaches that, surely you know what Saul has done. And then Saul swears by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So since he took a vow to the Lord that way, who do you want me to bring up? We'll bring up Samuel. And then it says, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And listen to this. The woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said, what's his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground, and he paid homage. I mean, we see that a lot in these passages, right? We saw it with Abigail doing it yesterday with David a couple of days ago. We saw David bowing to the earth and giving homage to Saul as his king. <clears throat> and then Samuel says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Up. Up would mean out of Sheol, which is the, the resting place of the dead in, um, in Hebrew thought. And so to bring me up, I was resting. Why did you? Why have you disturbed me? He's waiting for the coming of the kingdom uh, by resting. And Saul answered, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God's turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I should do. And then Samuel lays it down on him. Why do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord's done exactly what he said he would do. He's torn the kingdom out of your hand. He's given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. And what does Saul say? He said that, that he had obeyed the voice of the people. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. And moreover, the Lord will give Israel along with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of Philistines. Then Saul fell at once on the ground, full length, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him. He had eaten nothing all day and all night. Saul's fear, or fears, plural, um, continued to cause him problems. First, he feared the people, what they would think if he did this, that, and the other thing. If he didn't, it, it, they wanted him to keep the, the, the spoils of war in spite of the fact God had told him not to keep spoils of war. And so he feared the people more than he feared God. And again, it's the seen and the unseen, right? The things that we see, we tend to have more fear of than the things that we don't see. And so that's exactly what's happened here with Saul. And so he ends up having to see Samuel proclaim this word against him. So are you glad you brought him up? Are you see where your fear took you? Do you see exactly what happened here? So it's we, we've got to keep our fear in check and we've got to, to believe more than the evidence of our eyes. We have to believe that there's something greater than the evidence of our eyes. And that's exactly where Saul completely blew it again and again and again. That which was in front of him controlled him. And in this Mark passage, we've got an extraordinary event, right? I mean, this is one of the most amazing things you'll ever see. Jesus goes into the land of the Gerasenes. And the Ger land of the Gerasenes was a place where the, the Jews believed was one of the gates of hell was there. I mean, that's how, that's how horrible this place was. No Jew would go to the land of the Gerasenes for any particular reason. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who lived among the tombs. You, know, you don't hang out in the abode of the dead. That, that's a Jewish non-starter. You don't hang out in, in the place where the dead are. And so that you're, you're going to be unclean for a period of time by being among the dead this way. 
So he's already gone to the Gerasenes, which is unclean. Now he's got a man with an unclean spirit, and now he's among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. I mean, this guy's a frightening individual. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Great, now we got blood. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So who is it that's speaking here? Is, is, is the demon, or the demons, as we're going to find out in a minute, or is it the man? It's, it's the demons. They've so completely controlled this man that they now speak uh, through him. He's no longer truly a man in any shape, form, or fashion. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. This man is in torment. It's not the man who's speaking here. It's the demons that are speaking. And we know that because this conversation continues in such a way that it's clear that he does. But I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Really? You're invoking God? In this instance, you, you really don't know who Jesus truly is, that he's not just the, quote, son of the Most High God, he's also God. And he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So who is he tormenting? Not the man, he's tormenting the spirit in the spirit's thinking. And Jesus asked him, what's your name? He said, my name is Legion, for we're many. And he begged him earnestly not to send, him out of the, send them out of the country. Why? Why would he not want him to, to send them out of the country? Because they found a home there. They were happy there. They were, not, they were not a problem to be in that country. They didn't want to have to leave that country. It reinforces that idea about the, this being one of the gates of hell. But, but it also says Jesus has great power. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So they're showing this power, and, and there's this, this um, the, we, now we've got pigs, by the way, so we've got all kinds of Jewish uncleanness involved in this, and it only matters because what happens after this story, actually, is the reason I'm telling you those things. So the, the, the pigs rush down the bank and drown themselves in the sea, and the herdsmen then run and go and tell everybody what in the world has happened in the city and in the country. And people came to see what's happened, and they saw Jesus and the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right wind, and they were afraid. They knew the power that had lived in this man before that, and now they see him clothed and in his right mind, and they don't know what to do. They're afraid because they've seen great power now, that which could, could throw out, which, which couldn't be bound by shackles and chains, and nobody could subdue him. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They were, they were less afraid of those demons than they were of Jesus. They wanted him to leave because they were afraid of his power. And so they beg him to leave. So we've got begging going on all over the place here, right? We've got demons begging Jesus not to torment him, begging him not to send him out of the country, begging him to uh, send us into the pigs. And now we've got the people of the region begging Jesus to go out of the region. Please leave this whole area as soon as possible. They were more afraid of Jesus than they were of the demons. But they didn't put themselves and submit themselves to the power. They let themselves be controlled by their fear. 
better the devil you're accustomed to than the one you're not accustomed to. And so that they want him to leave. And so often that's true in cases of addiction and things like that, is, is that, that people become comfortable in situations and, and now they, they don't want Jesus to come in there and change things because this is the way I'm accustomed to living. And to change things would, would mean that I would have to create some sort of whole new life outside of that. And that's the reason he has to ask people, do you want to be made well? And so he's getting into the boat, and the, and the, the man who had previously been possessed by the demon begs him, again so we get somebody else begging not that he might go with jesus and jesus says no go home to your friends who are they and tell them how much the lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you and he went away and began to proclaim in the decapolis the ten cities how much jesus had done for him and everyone marveled i mean you you can't deny it it's that guy it's the one who was demon possessed it's it's sort of like the the thing in john 9 where jesus heals the man who's been born blind and people begin to question well i don't even think it's him it can't be him, because he's healed, and he's in his right mind. Well, this guy, everybody knew. Everybody knew who he was, and everybody knew what had happened. And so he continued to be there as a witness to the power that was in Jesus. And now they got to make a decision. Are you willing to accept this new power and, and grant that control over your life, or are you going to stay in the, in the way you are? And so he stays. And can you imagine how much this guy wanted to go and be with Jesus? I mean, who wouldn't? And yet Jesus tells him, no, you've got to stay here. You know? So he becomes the, the witness to them, the, the stronghold, essentially, of, of the proclamation of Jesus in that area. In the Acts passage, what we've got is, is Paul and, and Barnabas are, are back in uh, Antioch, and people come out from Judea, and they're teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And this is a battle Paul has to fight the rest of his ministry. You see it again and again in the letters, particularly in the letter to Galatians, for instance. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. We've got to get this right. How are we going to incorporate non-Jews into this new thing? Is it going to require circumcision or not? And so they went on up, and they go through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to the brothers. And then they get there and they're welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all the gun through them. But there were some there who belonged to the party of the Pharisees who rose up and says it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Those are two different things, right? Circumcision and keeping the law of Moses. But, but they're yoked with one another. And so they say you've got to do both these things. And now the church faces the thorniest theological question it'll ever face in history, to be honest with you. What are we going to do? How do we handle these Gentiles? What do we do? And Peter stands up as they're talking about this and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So he's talking about what happens at the home of Cornelius. And he made no distinction between us and them. You could read it this way. He made no distinction between us who were circumcised and them who were not, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And that's the yoke of keeping the, the law of Moses perfectly. He says, we, we've never been able to do that. Why are, we, why are we now putting that yoke on them? Why are we putting the yoke of the law on them? No, no, no. You're going to be yoke fellows with Jesus, and he's bearing the burden. My yoke is easy, remember? My burden is light. 
And so Jesus is going to be, be the one who bears the burden, and then he's going to give them a new burden, which is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's as simple as that. He says, but we believe that we will all be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. That's an extraordinary statement. I mean, it's almost impossible to conceive that Peter stands in front of the people, the disciples in the midst of this question and says, says, here's the way we need to resolve this. How are we saved? Are we saved through circumcision and, and the law of Moses? Or are we saved by grace? We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they, the uncircumcised, will. It's not about any of those things. It's about grace. Man, and when that happens, fear can run. It can go away and it can be gone forever because no longer do I have to fear whether I've done well enough or not. I know Jesus did well enough. He was raised from the dead, raised to the right hand of the Father. Fear can go away. I need no longer fear. I just need to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. The only one that I should fear is the lover of my soul. It's a beautiful picture. It's a wonderful thing. How do we deal with fear? What do we do with it? And perfect love casts out fear, John says. Have you experienced the perfect love of Jesus? Have you, have you experienced truly that, that grace is the only answer? That no matter what you do, it's not good enough? That the only hope you have is Jesus? doesn't mean you're, you're, you're not to do good things. In fact, we're saved for good works. We're saved in order that we might do those things and we might do them in a way that's pleasing to God, not just out of duty and responsibility, but because we love Him. And because we love Him, we love those who are created in His image. You've been set free by grace from any performance standard you could possibly construct or anybody else could. And don't let anybody put that yoke of performance on your shoulders and tell you that that's what matters most. Nope. You stand in the love of Christ.